From Washington, this is the CQ Budget Podcast, your leading Capitol Hill source on how Congress allocates federal taxpayer dollars. And welcome back to the CQ Budget Podcast. I'm David Lerman, your budget tracker, and this is the final countdown for a stopgap spending measure to avoid a government shutdown next month. October 1st, they need new spending by then or else agencies start shutting down. So this is the final week that Congress has to get it done. It hasn't been going well. These, what should be a simple extension of current funding, they're always a heavy lift, and this year is no different. So we want to talk about how they might get it done, how this process is going to play out, because we have a little more intelligence now on what the game plan might be. Joining me to do that is Aiden Quigley, our appropriations reporter at CQ Roll Call. Thanks again for joining me, Aiden. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's talk about uh, how this might play out, Aiden. But I think the first thing we should say is no one's talking about a shutdown, right? You haven't heard that. No, it, it seems uh, very likely uh, that there will be an agreement by the end of next week. Uh, without the need for a any type of short-term extension. Uh, right now, the expectation pretty much across the aisle is that there will be a deal to get into mid-December uh, by the end of next week. Uh, Friday night at midnight is when the uh, you know current fiscal year runs out. So it might be a late night next Friday, but I don't think we'll be seeing any type of, of shutdown. Okay. And... What we don't know is if, if they can't get this done to run through mid, mid-December with some possibly some emergency money in it that the White House wants, they might have to resort to just a stopgap of a few days to buy them a little more time. I heard that option floated, I think, by Richard Shelby, the top Senate Republican appropriator this week. Doesn't sound like they're taking that seriously at this point, but that still hangs out there as an option if for some reason uh, these negotiations don't come together, right? Yeah, so as a, as a like worst case scenario option, that is on the table, but uh, Democratic sources tell me that they're not considering that as a uh, possibility at this point. Uh, in that they're not planning for it, they're not preparing a backup, they're really focused on getting one done that does go into uh, the middle of December. Okay, so the question is, how do they make that happen? And it sounds like what we know right now is the first key test vote in the Senate, this is going to start in the Senate, we know now, because it's been hung up on this effort to streamline energy permitting, that's the priority of West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, who insisted on this thing as a condition for his voting for the big climate health care inflation reduction act package last month he insisted on getting a vote on on this permitting streamlining and so that's been the major hang up in this in this spending measure that they need now so that's why it really needs to start in the senate this bill because they need to work out something with mansion that that can get 60 votes in the senate bipartisan support And so there is going to be a test vote now. Uh, The first procedural vote of several sounds like it's slated for Tuesday night, right? Yeah, so Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer filed cloture yesterday, um, which paves the way on a legislative vehicle to uh, pave the way for a vote on Tuesday night. Uh, The idea is that they will swap in... um, 
the language of the CR into that vehicle and then vote on that. But as you mentioned, the Joe Manchin uh, permitting effort is really what is standing uh, kind of in the way here. You know, uh, Schumer promised Manchin a vote by the end of September, uh, and that vote will be this you know initial procedural vote on the CR. Uh, it looks extremely, extremely unlikely that Manchin's bill will get 60 votes because uh, most Republicans have come out against it and Democrats, a uh, handful at least of Democrats are also against it. Uh, it. There's just really a murky path where there's bipartisan uh, opposition and he needs 60 votes. So it's appearing that the Tuesday night vote, if the CR does include the Manchin text, uh, might not that might not pass, which would uh, set up a whole other string of events. Yeah, you have sort of an interesting coalition of opponents here to Mansion. You've got Republicans who say his streamlining effort doesn't go far enough, right? And then you've got progressives, particularly in the House, but even also in the Senate, who are saying this is a giveaway to big oil and gas. And they don't like it. And particularly, the big focus here is this Mountain Valley Pipeline, uh, which is Manchin's pet project, really, in this, in this measure. That's the biggest thing he cares about. It's a 300-mile it's a pipeline that would carry natural gas running from his home state of West Virginia into Virginia that he desperately wants. And this, his permitting measure would speed that up and really make that possible. And that has infuriated the Democrats' liberal wing. And Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, was asked about it, specifically about the pipeline at her weekly press conference. It was striking to me because she was asked, can the House pass a spending measure of any kind if it includes the pipeline? And she dodged and she said, we're going to have to see what comes out of the Senate and I'm not going to speculate ahead of time. And she added that it might still be open to negotiation, words to that effect, which suggests to me that if it comes out of the Senate with the pipeline in it, <laughs> that's going to be a hard sell in the House. And who knows if this bill has to get ping-ponged back and forth a little. Yeah, so more than 80 House Democrats have signed a letter uh, asking for the matching bill not to be included on the CR. Um, but it, at this point, it's really looking like there's just not the political will in the Senate um, or even or the House for that, for that, for that bill. So uh, if I had to speculate, I would say next week, you know, we'll see a vote in the Senate where, you know, a CR with the Manchin bill on it will not succeed. Uh, and then Chuck Schumer can turn to Joe Manchin and say, hey, look, I promised you this vote by the end of the month. And here it is. We tried our best. But clearly, look at, look at, look at the politics at play here. Look at the numbers. It's uh, not, not going to happen. Right. So at that, point, at that point, the question is, he could strip Manchin's permitting measure from the spending, from the continuing resolution, right? Strip it off, bring the bill back up and try to pass it that way. Yeah, so this, so either the Senate could do that, or uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, kind of alluded to that the House might start it after the Senate votes uh, against the permitting, matching permitting uh, effort. 
but it's still unclear exactly how that way, you know, which way they would go. It could start in either chamber in that scenario. So I think that's still, they're still trying to figure that out, uh, what the plan would be after the Tuesday night vote. They're giving themselves some wiggle room in the House, I guess, to possibly, to possibly go first on the bill if it really stalls out in the Senate. But I think, but clearly they're expecting the Senate to go first and they want the Senate to go first. And they're hoping the Senate produces a bill that the House can just then ram through in the closing hours of next week uh, when the deadline is is right on them just to get it done. So all eyes will be on the Senate come Tuesday when they come back in session or Tuesday night, really, uh, with only a few days to go. And still there's, you know, even apart from the permitting mess, it's not clear that they've resolved some of these other fights. I mean, keep in mind, the White House has requested something like $47 billion worth of emergency spending. That includes money for Ukraine. Now, Schumer said there'd be at least $12 billion for Ukraine in this package. But I haven't heard whether Republicans have signed off on that, whether whether they're pressing for more or less. I don't. Do we know anything more on Ukraine? Does it seem like $12 billion is the figure? Yeah, so I would say the figure is still up in the air a little bit, but I definitely expect to see some more Ukraine aid in this in this bill. Uh, there's definitely by you know there's been longstanding bipartisan support since the war started earlier this year for funding for Ukraine. Uh, and while the details I think are still being worked out, I would definitely expect to see Ukraine money in the CR, but not other things the Biden administration wanted like more COVID funding and uh, monkeypox funding. Um, those two aspects, uh, it would be the Republicans are not supportive enough of those for them to, I think, to make it into uh, this bill. Yeah, I think that that will be a blow to the Biden administration. They've been pushing for over twenty two billion dollars worth of covid money for for more vaccines and testing and to prepare for the new variant of the virus. They've been pushing for that since last March. They still haven't gotten it. And it doesn't look like it's going to be in this package either. Um, because Republicans are just really resistant to the need for more money for that. And they're saying there's there's still money sloshing around from previous pandemic relief laws that they should be able to tap. So it does look like that won't be in this bill. And I don't think they're sold on the monkeypox yet either as being kind of premature maybe for, for needing more money. And even aid and disaster aid, I'm not clear the White House – the White House requested about $6.5 billion for disaster aid. You'd think there'd be some support for that, particularly because a lot of it was for flooding in Kentucky, the home state of Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader. And yet, sounds like Republicans aren't convinced they need disaster aid either, right? Yeah. I mean, as of right now, it seems like there's not widespread Republican support for more disaster aid. Uh, it still could potentially make it make it into the CR. Uh, but we'll have to wait, wait and see on that, um, how exactly that'll, that'll play out. And I think one of the reasons it, it may not make it into the bill is that FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which runs this disaster relief fund, seems to be flush with cash right now. Their last statement showed they had something like over $13 billion worth of money sitting there available to be used. So the thinking may be that that there's enough money 
already available uh, for this upcoming, even even for the hurricane they just had in Puerto Rico, uh, that might be in the billions of dollars worth of damage, they might feel that there's enough money already available that they can tap for that so that they don't need to appropriate more right now. Of course, they could be wrong in that, and then they're going to need more sometime soon. But I think if it's not in this package, I think it's because they've calculated that that fund, that relief fund is is flush with cash right now. And so they're covered for the moment. And I think that's what Shelby was suggesting too, uh, that he didn't expect it in the, in the, in this stopgap measure. So that may go by the way, waysides as well, which, which makes it easier to negotiate if that's the case, right? Because if you don't have to negotiate levels of COVID money and you don't have to negotiate monkeypox and you don't have to negotiate disaster relief, well, that saves them a lot of time, right? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. The less, the, the less in the CR, the easier it would presumably be to land on some final numbers and get this thing moving next week. Right. So they do have to settle on Ukraine aid, it sounds like. So that's still hanging out there and and a duration for the stopgap, which we think it's going to run through December 16th, right? That seems to be the date everybody's been talking about. Yeah, that, that is that is uh, the date that, that, that is, uh, that's being talked about. Uh, I will say there has been some Republican push to get that, to get the CR into the next Congress in the new year. But that's really a small number of, of Republicans who want to do that. And that's not the plan uh, by any by any means at this point. So it should run through mid-December, which means it's they're thinking there's going to be a year-end final spending package, omnibus package, that comes together right before Christmas. If everything goes their way, we'll, we'll wait and see on that. But just to get this stopgap measure done is a heavy lift. So it starts Tuesday night, and we will be covering it all to see how that plays out. Um, but it's going to take a lot of procedural wrangling, it sounds like, to get it done. Uh, as I say, at least three procedural cloture votes it's, by our count because of all the machinations they have to go through to get this to get this bill onto a shell vehicle and, and motions to proceed and, and limiting debate and all these procedural hurdles that have to happen. So we're in for some, some long days and nights, I think, with only a few days to go. Well, we, we will be covering all that for you and we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but before we go, Aiden, I just wanted to also touch on a great little story you had this week that doesn't get enough attention sometimes, which is the earmarks. You know, we've, this is only the second year in over a decade that we they've brought back these spending earmarks in appropriations bills, the pet projects lawmakers like to insert for their home states and districts. And you had a nice little story. The Government Accountability Office dug into the numbers for this past fiscal year, the, the current fiscal year, really, as to all the all the earmarks and, and where they went. We knew that there were about $9 billion worth total in earmarks. They're a tiny fraction of the federal budget, we should point out, you know, less than 1% of all federal spending. It's not big dollars overall, but it can really have influence in, in uh for members back home and in their re-election campaigns, um, and you and the GAO tracked where it went, and 
there was some some sort of some interesting fun findings here of 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 how the money got divvied up. Yeah, so when you take a look at the uh, take a look at the data here, CQ's uh, Ryan uh, Kelly helped help kind of crunch these numbers, but essentially we found that the states with some of the top appropriators received uh, a disproportionate amount of federal money during this earmarking process. Uh, for example, if you look uh, per capita, uh, Alas- Alaskans received three hundred and thirty nine dollars per resident. And they, of course, have Senator Lisa Murkowski, who's the top Republican on the Interior Environment uh, Subcommittee uh, in Vermont, home of the Appropriations Chairman Patrick Leahy, was second per capita with $321 per person. And if you look at some bigger states like California, California finished number one overall in total money at $774 million. But that only translates to around $20 per resident when you look at the per capita figures. So definitely, you can definitely see uh, appropriators um, getting money to those states. Yeah. I suppose not surprising that, that when you, the more senior you are as an appropriator, the more money you, the more clout you have to bring home money to your state. But that report does, does really show in, in, in stark relief, some of the disparities here. When you, when you think of how relatively tiny a state like Alaska or Vermont are, and how much they're bringing in per capita, it does kind of make you think, you know, <laughs> you know, a state like California with 40 million people, uh, are they really getting their fair share compared to these others? And, and uh, that, is, that is the power of appropriators, uh, I suppose, that uh, they control the purse springs. And it really shows in this, in this story that you did. And even, even beyond per capita, Aiden, I think you had a number in there, Alaska placed 12th nationwide in their total amount of earmarks, not per capita, just total, they place 12th. And they're certainly not 12th in population. I mean, they're they're clearly punching above their weight for such a small state. Yeah, for sure. And and on a similar note, uh, number two overall, Alabama, home of the top Republican Senate appropriator, Richard Shelby, with 590 million. Number three was New York, Bigger state, four hundred twenty-five million. So it really goes to show how much influence these top appropriators really have when it comes to this earmarking process. Yeah. So if folks want to check that out, you should go to CQ.com and find the story on on the auditors and and the earmark tally because um, it has some cool numbers in there to with, with a chart to look through. You can check out how your state did in the in the earmarks for the current fiscal year. But I think that's all the time we have for today. We will be tracking the progress on the stopgap spending measure very closely in the next few days. So hang on. It's going to be a bumpy ride. But do check out our stories on CQ.com or RollCall.com. And I hope you all subscribe to the CQ Budget newsletter for all the latest information each day. You can do that. Go to CQ.com. Thanks again, Aiden, for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. really appreciate it. And Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time to review how all of the stopgap spending negotiations played out.